Like I said, it's been my privilege to bring us together to consider the, the incarnation, the coming of Christ, Him coming, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God, He was with God in the beginning, and then it goes on to talk about how Christ came and put on flesh and dwelt among us. How God became man and dwelt among us. And the week, the first week that we started this, I said it's absolutely impossible to truly understand the incarnation of Christ. It's impossible for us to understand God's whole redemptive story if we start at the manger. Although it's a wonderful thing, it's a wonderful idea, and we, we sing about, oh, little town of Bethlehem, and we sing all these warm and endearing songs that sometimes you think about holding a little candle in a dark church and sing songs. We watch children's plays about Mary and this beautiful child that was born. It's impossible for us to really understand the whole story without understanding it from the beginning. We have got to understand that the gift of Jesus is rooted in grief, in the heart of God. It's also connected to grief in our own hearts. God hears our cry, and the ultimate response is the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. We also look to the fact that the announcement that those angels made on that one night, we don't know whether it was a starry night, if it was a clear night, if there was snow or anything on the ground. All we know is that it was one of the most famous hymns ever sung in biblical history. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with whom he is well pleased. And it's not just an announcement of birth, of a birth, of a royal birth. It's a prediction of a death that is to be coming. But I'd like to add one more piece this morning. And I'd like to do this by means of a question. Part of me wants to keep it as a rhetorical question, one that I just ask and you think about in your head and not verbally say out loud. But I think that we're uh, brave enough or maybe crazy enough of a community to actually answer it. If I was going to ask you to answer this question about the top 10 things, and I think David Letterman-ish, that brings you joy and pleasure. Joy and pleasure. What would you write down? What brings you deep joy and pleasure? Now here's my one caveat. Do not get suddenly spiritual on me. Because I know we're, we're all kind of sitting here in our Sunday best, and all of a sudden you're okay, it sounds like a squirrel, it looks like a squirrel, so it must be a squirrel. So that's going to be the answer. Now, Jesus is not the answer. Some of you, if you really answer, answer this truthfully, the answer that is not Jesus. What is it that brings you deep joy and deep joy? pleasure shoot it out what do you got personal time time. nature children laughter you got them all you're you're quiet for the rest of the time now agnes 
the noise around a table in a kitchen. Yeah, and the family time. Good. What else? Mm. Watching the kids, yeah. What else brings you deep joy and pleasure? Nature. Even snow? Mm. <laughs> not dad, not me, Grace. What else brings you joy and pleasure? If you look back over a perfect day or a perfect week and you say, man, I would change absolutely nothing. What is it that you would say? Good conversations. Good food. Getting an A in school. Anything else? Helping somebody. Music. Oh, hint, hint. That's a cheap Christmas present right there. <laughs> what else? What else brings you deep joy, deep pleasure? Uh, yeah. The bing. Quality family time. Mm. I had a phone call from my, my grandmother. Uh, she was wishing me happy birthday. And she, I said, so what are you doing today, Grandma? I'm doing the thing that I just love to do every Friday. She gets her hair done every Friday. She, she just loves that. Time for Grandma just to, of course, Sunday, but uh, on Friday. <laughs> I don't know how you do it, but. I wish that I could these questions and say that, man, I, I am beyond all you guys. I am deeply spiritual. I'm at a whole nother level, a whole nother, another plane of spirituality. The reality is that that's just not me. I enjoy, deeply enjoy summer months with the top off with the Jeep. <laughs> Blowing through my hair. <laughs> I, I, I just thoroughly enjoy that. I enjoy sitting on our family's back uh, eating fine food and good drink. I enjoy, time to be honest, right? I enjoy a good cigar on a cool. I enjoy a very good glass of red wine, blue cheese, and these amazing crackers that have blacked, cracked pepper in them. I enjoy a great state. And those, these things are all bringing great pleasure. What's that? Uh, five. I, I enjoy all these things. I enjoy watching our children. Just recently, they have been playing together. Son and daughter playing together and just giggling. That just brings me great joy to watch my kids enjoy each other. I enjoy those moments when my wife and I can sit up early in the morning and do devotions. And even though they might be difficult sometimes, have walk away going, oh, that was delicious. I enjoy, and it brings me great pleasure, a triple grande, caramel macchiato. It might be an addiction, but I love those things. 
That, you know that first taste of something where all of a sudden you go, oh, I've been waiting for that. I love everything even that Christmas brings. The lights, the smells. This is the first year in probably three or four years that we haven't put up a real Christmas tree. And there's something that I miss about the smell of pine, the, a real Christmas tree smell when you walk into the house. I love those smells, the sights, and the, there's a certain hustle, bustle, kind of joy and anticipation. Our kids are kind of waiting, you know. Grace has already announced that she's found her three presents under the tree. There's this, this waiting and the longing, and I love those kind of things. Bring me pleasure. But here's what I, I want you and me to understand this morning. That this magnificent story that we've been considering, this magnificent story is really connected to pleasure in the heart of God. It's really connected to pleasure in the heart of God. And when you get that, when we get that this, this season, this time, this anticipating for Christ is deeply rooted in the heart of God, it changes everything it's not about it no longer becomes okay i gotta get this done i gotta get this done even this is waiting because we're anticipating something pleasurable and it's deeply rooted in the pleasure of god and today we are going to look at one verse just one verse isaiah 53 isaiah 53 10 614 and this one verse this one verse is located kind of lodged in the middle of a discourse on the suffering of a coming messiah this coming messiah is going to be coming and describing who this is and this one verse is one of those says it all kind of verses it is really a capsule of the story and honestly it's a verse that you could probably just skip through as you're taking in all the amazing content of Isaiah 53 but before I get to this one verse I want to give you a bit of a principle that will seem like maybe it won't it might not seem like it connects to the pleasure of God but it will, hopefully, as we walk through all of this. And in this, there is no greater, no more clear, no more pungent, no more amazing demonstration of the love of God than his offering of his son. So Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put, on, put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Just that one verse is expansive. It, it's kind of like those, you know, those chia pets you just spread on the stuff and add water and what does it do? It, it just grows and grows and grows. Or those little styrofoam 
things that you put in a capsule and you put, put them in water and the kids just wait for that thing to grow and expand. This is one of those verses where they, it just grows and expands. And it's the kind of verse where if I was allowed, I could probably stay preaching on this in consecutive sermons until Tuesday. Just to keep us in it. But I won't. We all, some of you have roasts and lunch plans and stuff like that waiting for you. But this is just one of those verses. And I want to look at just right now that first phrase. Yet it was the will of the Lord to what? Crush him. And I'm going to say, I want to start out by saying this. I don't like the translation. Not because of what it says, but because I think that there's something missing. I don't understand why the translators of the ESV chose the translation they they chose because I think that the translation actually is meant to communicate something more clear and more stronger than this. And it's in many other translations. It's this. Throw it up for me, Brent. Yet it pleased the Lord. It pleased the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. Now think about that for a moment. You have to get get your mind around it and your heart open to this radical phrase and what it is communicating to us, that it pleased the Lord to crush him. How could it be that God the Father would ever find any kind of pleasure in crushing his son and putting grief on him? But that's what this verse communicates. And it's meant to kind of stop you in your tracks, stop you short, and have you ask questions like, how? How how does this bring pleasure to God? And why would this bring pleasure to God? It makes sense. If you are a parent, think think for a moment with me. Think of the heart you have for your children. You know, even Agnes talked about she loves that, that time around the meal where everybody gathers and you as a parent just love those moments. But there's that other side where you as a parent, you know how you fear for your child, your children. You hurt for your children. You do whatever you can that is humanly possible to protect your children. You repeat those warnings over and over and over and over and over and over again, and your kids finally kind of roll their eyes back in their head because they go, I know, Mom. I know, Dad. I've heard it over and over and over again. But why do you do what you do? You do it because you have a deep love for them, right? And you want to preserve them from any kind of danger, any kind of harm. You, don't want, you want to protect your children. You want to create a huge bubble around them of safety and security. You pray that their lives would be free from any difficulty. That God would give them success in their, in their personal lives, in their academic lives, in their spiritual lives, in their emotional lives, in their, in their marital lives, in their children's lives, in their children's children's lives. You pray for those kind of things. You would never want anything that is being described here in this passage to ever happen to one of your children. How many of us could honestly say, it is the will, it, 
it brings me pleasure to have my children crush. I, I really want to put my children to grief. The heart of a parent is to love and to protect. You have to look at this passage and, and ask, what is so powerful, so motivating in the heart of God that he would be willing, even find pleasure in subjecting his son to this horrible thing? What could be in the heart of God that would even allow him to do with this kind of thing? answer is, and I want you to hear this about what I'm about ready to say. It's about love. Magnificent, faithful, joyous, redeeming love. Think, think about John 3.16. We can almost all do it from memory, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know, God so loved the world. God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave. This God that knows us personally and intimately that created us in our mother's wombs, knitted us together that God so loved the world that he gave. That he would be willing to do this radical thing of giving his son. You see, God looks at this broken, messed up world. God looks at us broken on the inside, now separated from him in every kind of relationship possible. The one thing that we were created to do is have this relationship with God in such a way that it brings him honor and glory. That God is magnified. Glory to God in the highest. So that we were created to glorify God in every way possible, but we are so broken. So God, so full of love, so full of grace, so full of compassion, was not willing for the world and for us to stay in that state. That is love. And because of the nature of sin, we, as you know, are unable unable to help ourselves we're unable to escape this dilemma that grips our hearts that damages our lives that damages our minds that damages our sexuality that damages our worldview that damages and it ripples out and out and out we're unable you and me are unable to fix this world god had to move on our behalf God so loved that he gave. No, God didn't find particular joy and, and pleasure in those particular moments of suffering that his son experienced. But he found pleasure in what that suffering would result in. That is the bottom line. It is a story of magnificent love. And I want to say it again. It is a love that we could never achieve or earn 
or desire. It must be given as a gracious gift from God. God loved us this much, that he would be willing to subject his son to unthinkable things. Why? Because that one death will give life to many. Now maybe you're thinking, man, Paul, I have heard this story. This is a salvation story. Get on. I've, I've heard this. Why are, you, why are you emphasizing this so terribly much? Why are you pointing out this? And here's why. And I think it's even pointed in, in our prayer requests that we've heard this morning. Maybe sometime in the next week, in the next month, in the next year, you will find yourself in some circumstances, at some location, in some relationship, where you are going to find yourself tempted to doubt the love of God. Maybe it'll be a, be a moment of physical suffering. And you're going to wonder, why has God put this moment of pain, of sickness, of Whatever is going, why has God allowed this circumstance to be in my life? Why is this my experience? Maybe it's going to be in the midst of a very, very significant relational disappointment or brokenness with a person that you love dearly, somebody that you have loved who has turned his or her back on you. And you wonder why God has brought this into your life. Or maybe it's going to be a moment of just extreme financial difficulty and you have sought to obey the Lord. You've even been a good steward of his resources that he's given to you. Maybe you've lost your job and it just does not make any sense at all. Or maybe you're just plain looking around the world around you and you're going, man, this world that we live in, evil seems to be winning. Again and again, this has been overturned. This is overturned. Look at these lifestyles. Look at these people. Look at this brokenness in my family, in my life. Look at these things. Evil seems to be winning. And you're, you begin to wonder, where is God? Where is his love? This is your argument. This is the place to run to because not only does the giving of Christ argue for the magnificence of God's love, but it also argues that he will continue to love you. Listen to Romans 8.32. Paul wrote this and he said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So here's Paul's logic. If God would do this radical thing of giving his son to us so that we might have life, would he not do other things? to bless us, to preserve us, to keep us. Look at Isaiah 53 again. It pleased the Lord to crush him and bring him to grief. 
Crushing has to do with the physical suffering of Christ. Every moment of Christ's human life was that of physical suffering. He didn't, it didn't just begin on the cross. His whole life was one of suffering. The manger began his suffering. He suffered every day as he subjected himself to the harsh realities of living in a fallen world. There's also emotional suffering as well. And that's the grief word. He was despised and rejected by man. And it reached its crescendo where? At the cross. Where he finally cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it wasn't like we just said it right here. Why have you forsaken me? This was the cry of his heart. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his brokenness emptiness is God turned his back on his son at that moment and Christ was just emotionally, spiritually everything relationally just broke. Now Paul is saying, he's arguing if God would subject Christ if he was willingly ready, willing, and able to give in that way for us we would not give everything else that we need. It would make no sense for, for God to do this radical thing and then turn his back on you in your moment of deepest need. It makes no sense. There's no redemptive logic in that whatsoever. And so Paul argues that your guarantee that God will be faithful to you your guarantee that God will be faithful to you, that he will be with you and in you and for you and meet all your needs as you walk through this life towards eternity and beyond, your guarantee is in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's your guarantee. And if God did this, he will meet all of your needs. But we've got to put a pause right here. Because some of you are going, ooh, needs. Christmas list. And we've, we, we have a hard time with this word needs. Terrible problem with this word needs. We load it all kinds of things into this one word, our needs. These are our lists. I'm going to give you my want list. Okay, God? This is, these are all my needs. And if all my needs are going to be met in Christ, let's start off with a real comfortable and a really nice. And how about lots of? And all these things that I like, lots of blue cheese and fine wine. A marriage that is flawless without any skips or bumps or issues. Children who never, a job that, that is not what we're talking. Paul is not arguing in Romans 8 that God is going to just sign off on your wish list. Hear that. Your creator knows your deepest needs. Your deepest needs. And he is totally committed. Totally committed to meet all those needs. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to play out all the what-ifs in your head. You don't have to try to figure out the sovereignty of God. Let me say that again. 
You don't have to figure out the sovereignty of God. What is God's design and plan and purpose in all these things? You don't have to do that. And, and because here's the reality. There are going to be moments in your life where God absolutely confounds you, confuses you, where none of this makes any sense. You're going to sit back and go, are you serious, God? Now this? I have been faithful. I have been faithful with this, 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 and now this? Are you serious? What have I done? This confounds you. But it's, it, those moments are even depicted in the Psalms. Psalm 13, David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? That's David saying, Are you serious? How long? I'm living in this tension. How long? And then there's this kind of sarcastic, forever? Sometimes it's the confusing things that God has brought into your life that just make no sense that we need to resign. Say, I am not trying to figure out the sovereignty of God. You will never find heart rest never find heart rest or calm and peace and security of heart by just means of understanding with your head because there are things that god will do in your life that you will never understand tim keller pastor redeemer presbyterian in new york argues that the importance of believing in the sovereignty of god is not that that doctrine will make your life make sense to you. Oh, I understand the sovereignty of God. Now I can, all my life just makes sense now. No, he says the importance of believing in the sovereignty of God is precisely because life won't make sense to you. God is sovereign, not you. And we trust in his sovereign rule and his sovereign care even in the middle of our pain. And so the beautiful thing is, I have a place to run. If you are in Christ, you have a place to run. I have a moment, I, I, I have a, an argument in those moments, in those times. You have an argument in those moments and times where, when life doesn't make sense and where it seems like God is just not listening or hearing or answering your replies. When God seems to be distant, when, when I'm confused about what he's brought into my life, when I'm, when I'm looking at the life of someone else and, and that life over there, that life seems so much easier. When the enemy is just whispering in your ear, those promises they made to you. I know I have an argument. I open my Bible up to Isaiah 53 and Romans 8.32 and say, if God would do this for me, will he not meet all of my needs? Now I want to ask you that pastoral question this morning because it's, it's my privilege Do you have rest in your heart? Do you really have rest in your heart? Do you live with peace even in those moments 
when you're not in peaceful circumstances? Do you have a stability and a security that's not related to the issue of the moment? Do you torment yourself with an endless list of questions that you will not ever be able to answer? Do you wish that you have you had more control than you will ever have? Then perhaps you have not fully understood the full implications of the season that we're celebrating. It is the ultimate demonstration of faithful love. And if God would give His Son in this way, He will deliver everything that you and I need. This is the place where heart rest can be found. And I know that there's some of you whose honest and heart cry confession is that I don't have that rest. I don't have that peace. But this is to be your place of rest. Back to Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and he has put him to grief and when his soul makes an offering for sin, that's the plan. The plan was that a second Adam, the first one, screwed it up. The first Adam screwed it up. He failed the test and the second one had to come. Jesus was the second Adam and he, was, he had to be the willing he had to be willing to live in the middle of the harsh realities in the temptations of life in this fallen world. But he had to be willing to be obedient in every single way, in every thought, in every desire, in every hope, in every word, in every action. He must be obedient so that as he goes to the cross, he can be the perfect lamb of God. Blameless. He could be the perfect Lamb of God who would now carry our sins, satisfy the anger of God against sin so that we can receive forgiveness and acceptance into the family of God and a righteousness given to us through Christ and eternal life. You see, that's the plan. That's God's plan. And we have a problem that we cannot solve, that you cannot solve, but I think that we think we can. Our problem is called sin. And you cannot escape yourself. You can't escape from sin. You can't defeat it. You can't redeem the world from falling into sin or falling. We, we need to be rescued. That's why the promise of a Savior is so precious. And so from day one, that little baby was destined to die. Listen, the cross was not a moment of defeat. It was not an interruption, an interruption. It wasn't a hiccup in God's plan. The cross of Jesus Christ was the plan. He came to be the lamb. He came to be the offering that would finally satisfy all of God's anger against sin. 
For this result, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. That in one cruel death, life would be given to many and that there would be a great worldwide family of every language group and every location on the globe and every period in history who would have new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and he would be given offspring like the sands on the seashore. That's an amazing plan. One death, innumerable lives. And he shall prolong his days. To a Hebrew person, long life was a sure sign of blessing. And that little phrase, that he shall prolong his days, is a hint that the death of Jesus was not the end of the story. Was not the end of the story that he shall live on. So surely it's a prediction of his resurrection, but a prediction of another thing, that Jesus would live on in the hearts of many. Think about that. That he is new life as a person. Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So think about it. Often we think about, okay, Jesus came, baby in a manger, died on a cross, up in heaven. No, 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 no. Got it all wrong. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Does that not secure things even more in your brokenness in these holiday seasons? Listen, I have nothing to fear. The plan is accomplished, and Christ is in me. If God was willing to give his son, pay the penalty for all these sin and death and issues that are in our world, and I have received this by faith, and he's in me, hallelujah, what a savior. And he's in me. And then he says it's the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What a great phrase. When God placed this mission in the hands of Christ, he put it in good hands. If he would have put it in my hands, mess. You would have been all going to hell. You heard what I long for and what brings me pleasure. Christ's greatest desire was to do the will of his Father. And so when God put this plan in the hands of Christ to accomplish this mission, he knew that Jesus would be faithful to do everything that the Father asked him to do. And in doing so would provide us not only eternal life, but eternal hope. Jesus was faithful. Jesus was willing. Not even for a brief moment was his heart ever fickle. You and I, some of you are falling asleep. Jesus would be going, preach it. There's the, there's a, I want to hear this message. I want to I accomplish this. Jesus, there was not even a fickle moment in his heart. There was not even a brief moment where he even reconsidered this mission. He accepted the most severe job description with joy. And through him, God's work prospers. Now, 
I don't know, and it's probably a good thing that I don't know all the things that you brought into this room today. Right? So you yeah, I don't want you to know what I brought into this room. I don't know the hardships that you're facing. I don't know the grief that's in your heart. I don't know the temptations that you're struggling with. But I do know that you will be tempted to wonder where God is and what He's doing. I do know that there's an enemy who will whisper in your ear, where is your God now? You've obeyed Him for this? That's it? Where's that thing called grace? Where's His power? Isaiah 53.10 can arm you in those moments. God's love is magnificent and powerful, and so powerful and so willing that He was pleased to give His Son to cruel suffering and cruel death so that we could know life and experience life. And if He was willing to do such a thing that is inconceivable, that we just cannot understand, if He is willing to do such a thing, he will not abandon me now. He will not abandon me. So hear this. Rest is not found in understanding. Rest is found in the pleasure of the Father and in the willingness of His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no more clear-pointed, rest-giving demonstration of love of God for you than the gift of His Son. So I'm going to plead. In your moment of doubt, in your moment of fear, your moment of hurt, in your moment of disencouragement, discouragement, in those moments, don't run from this one. Run to him. Run towards love. And all God's people said, Let's pray.